Well, nine years ago in 2014, you can go ahead and hand them out now. Thank you, Evelyn and Ellie. Nine years ago in 2014, uh, two big time ministry organizations collaborated together to conduct a survey of the, quote, theological temperature of the United States to help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship. These two uh, big-time organizations are Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. And ever since then, they have conducted uh, the survey every two years to get a, a general vibe, a general feeling of the state of theology within the United States. And so the most recent survey was conducted in 2022, at the beginning of the year in January. Now, in this survey in 2022, there are over 3,000 participants. Of the 3,000-plus participants, uh, these two ministries sought to get a balance of gender, age, ethnicity, income, region, and religion. And so this isn't a ginormous sample size that they have. It's just a hair above 3,000 people. But it's a, a very balanced sample size that can give us, I would say, a pretty good glimpse into what U.S. adults believe. I'm not sure how they come up with this conclusion, but they claim that the sample provides 95% confidence that the sampling error from the online panel does not exceed 2%. So in other words, they claim that you can be 95% confident that the numbers in the poll would be within 2% of the actual outcome if you were to ask every single U.S. adult. So I have, uh, th throughout this survey, there's like 35 statements that they provide to these 3,000 plus participants, and they just say whether they strongly disagree, disagree, not sure, agree, or strongly agree. And so of these 35 statements, there were eight that jumped out to me that, that I want to uh, just take a moment and take a look at. And so Ben, if you have that uh, PowerPoint there of the different well, that's going to be uh, hard to see, but uh, th this is uh, the first chart there. The top line in all of these we see, uh, really you just need to see the colors. The top line there, the colors, uh, that represents all of the participants uh, that were involved in the survey. The bottom line indicates there uh, the evangelicals that were surveyed uh, throughout this survey. And so these are people, who, however they identify evangelical. Essentially, these are the Christians, the, the bottom line there in these different different statements. And so this first statement, what you see there, the statement reads, the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. And so just among evangelicals, 60% of evangelicals in the United States agree that the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. 33% disagree and 11% are unsure. Second one, the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. I was impressed with this. 51% of all participants agree. And so 51% of this 3,000 plus participants that they surveyed, they agree that the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. So we still live, according to the survey, we still live in a nation where the majority of the people believe that the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. That's encouraging. The next one, sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin. 94% of evangelicals agree with that. That's probably a slightly more than I would have anticipated. Next one, abortion. Abortion is a sin. 92% of evangelicals agree with the statement that abortion is a sin. 
Next one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Among the evangelicals, 100% agree. 100% of evangelicals that, that were surveyed believe that the, the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe. Again, I find that extremely encouraging as well, that uh, evangelicals, Christians, they're still resorting to the Bible as the ultimate authority in their life, the ultimate authority of truth that, that we have uh, present for us. The following uh, question or statement reads, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus as their savior. 99% of evangelicals agree with this. Next one, God is a perfect being who cannot make a mistake. 66% of all participants agree. And so two-thirds of U.S. adults believe that there is a God who is a perfect being who cannot make a mistake. Again, that's encouraging to me. And then finally, the last one that, that, uh, took, that I took note of was that it reads, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And this is one, really the one that intrigued me the most. 53% of total participants agree with this statement that Jesus is a great teacher, but that Jesus is not God. And then when you uh, break that down a bit, and when you look at the evangelicals, uh, the, however they break that down, 43% of evangelicals agree with this statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he, but he was not God himself. Now, when the study came out, it startled and it upset many pastors, theologians, teachers, etc. As many pastors, teachers, and theologians would disagree with this statement. They asked this same question in the survey in the year 2020, and in 2020, only 30% of evangelicals agreed with this statement. And in 2022, 43% of evangelicals agree with this statement. That's a 13% increase in just two years. And many people were startled by this. And I was startled by this, and I was also excited uh, by this. As this is a statement that uh, I would find that I agree with. I think throughout the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as the son of God and not necessarily God himself. And so that's our focus uh, for today as we continue our series, Tis the Jesus Season. We are leading up to Christmas Day talking about who Jesus is. Last week, we saw how Jesus is the Christ. Christ means anointed one, which really means uh, chosen one. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are essentially saying that Jesus is God's chosen one. We saw last week how God chose Jesus before the foundation of the world. Before God formed this world, he had a plan in Christ Jesus. He had a plan in his chosen one, and this chosen one, Christ Jesus, was at the center of God's plan for mankind. And we saw that, God, that God's chosen one, he fills a number of different roles. One of these roles that God specifically chose Jesus of Nazareth for was to be the son of God. And so today we, we are looking at Jesus fulfilling this role as being the son of God. 
Now, in, in our Bibles, there are four biographies about Jesus, and those are the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, known as the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very uh, similar to one another. John focuses on the life of Jesus. John focuses more on who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus more on what Jesus uh, did. But nevertheless, these are four books. Essentially, they're biographies on the life of Jesus. And each of these four guides recorded some pretty insane moments in the life of Jesus. Sometimes they touch base on the same events, and other times they focus on different events. When we look at the life of Jesus through these four accounts, we see uh, we can uh, point out four pretty insane feats that distinguish him from uh, most beings. Number one, we see the miraculous birth. Jesus had a miraculous birth that's recorded in, uh, in a number of these uh, biographies about Jesus. We see that Jesus had a ministry of prophecy, exorcism, healing, and miracles. So essentially, throughout Jesus' ministry, he performed many miracles. That is an impressive feat that distinguishes, uh, that distinguishes him from most. We also see in these uh, biographies that Jesus was transfigured into a shiny body. If you remember the incident, we're up on uh, the mount, and all of a sudden, uh, the different people had different ideas on what exactly transpired, whether it was vision or literally happened. Uh, some people uh, debate that. But what we see is that Jesus' body was transfigured into, it, it, it was illuminating uh, to those present there. And then finally, we also see another insane feat of Jesus recorded in these biographies. We see the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, at the UCA conference this past year, Sean Finnegan, uh, a teacher who I really uh, look up to, looked at these four different feats and saw how the Jews and the Greco-Romans would view these four different feats. During the life of Jesus, he was surrounded by these three uh, main worldviews that all collided together uh, throughout his life and ministry. We have the Jews. Uh, they were very important. Jesus himself was a Jew. We have the Greeks. Uh, if we go back uh, a couple, a few centuries before Jesus, we, uh, many of us are familiar with Alexander the Great, who conquered a vast chunk of land. And after Alexander the Great, all of a sudden, this Greek thought and this Greek mythology, Greek philosophy, it was very prevalent within these different regions that Alexander the Great conquered, including the region of Jesus, the, G, the, the region of the ministry of Jesus. And so Greek thought, Greek philosophy, and Greek religion were very prevalent during the life of Jesus. And we also have the Romans. The Roman Empire was the political power at play during the life of Jesus. And so it's a it's a complicated uh, stance position that Jesus found himself in as he had the Jews, the Romans, and the Greeks, and these three worldviews were all colliding together. Now, many combine uh, the Greek and Roman worldview into uh, what's known as the Greco-Roman worldview. And when the Greco-Romans would see the miraculous birth of Jesus— they would see that and they would compare it to the god Apollos impregnating a woman and giving birth to Pluto, another god. So they see this miraculous birth, Jesus being uh, the son of God. They would compare that to one of their mythologies of Apollos who impregnated a uh, human woman and gave birth to Pluto, uh, who is another god. 
The Greco-Romans, when they would see the miracles of Jesus being recorded, uh, some of them would probably compare it to the miracles of the different heroes who became gods. Uh, Probably the most well-known one for us uh, in the 21st century in Western civilization is Hercules, uh, also known as Heracles, and how he performed these uh, great feats, these great miracles, and he became a god himself. And so they would see these miracles that Jesus was performing, and they'd probably be reminded of Heracles or Hercules, and the great feats that he was able to accomplish in Hercules then became a god himself. The Greco-Romans, they would see the transfiguration of Jesus, Jesus shining bright, and uh, some of them may compare it to Apollo uh, in one of their mythologies, Apollo emitting flashes of fire like a star. Apollo, again, another one of their Greek gods that they worship. And then finally, the Greco-Romans, they would see the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And many of them would probably compare it to some mythologies of Heracles burning to death and then ascending to heaven as a god. So in summary, when we look at the Greco-Roman worldview, we see that many of them would probably deduct that Jesus is possibly a god because he stacks up very similarly to to some of their Greek mythologies and some of the gods that they worshiped and that they served. For these gods, they're born of a miraculous birth. They perform many miracles and then they became a god. They were transfigured and uh, some of them were uh, resurrected and ascended into the heavens, the the host of the gods. And so the the Greco-Romans, they would see all these tremendous events of Jesus And with their context, with this Greek thought and this Roman worldview that they were living in, many of them would pride it up that, hey, this guy, he's probably a god himself. And now the other main worldview that was present during the life and ministry of Jesus was that of the Jews. Now, how would the Jew view these feats of Jesus? Well, the Jew would see the miraculous birth of Jesus, and many of them may compare it to the miraculous birth of Samuel. If you remember the story of Samuel, Hannah uh, was barren. She didn't have any children, and she prayed to God, um, and she was having this conversation with Eli, and uh, she was told that you were going to give birth to a baby boy, Samuel. It, it was a miraculous birth foretold, or you, or you can think of uh, Isaac as well, Abraham and Sarah uh, up in their years, and uh, they were able to have a baby. And so they may see this miraculous birth of Jesus and compare it to these other miraculous births in the Old Testament. The Jew uh, would possibly see the miracles of Jesus, and they would maybe compare it to some of the miracles of the prophets. Did you know that Jesus was not the first one resurrected from the grave? This was a feat that was accomplished in the Old Testament by, by a prophet and uh, not, not raised to everlasting life. Uh, but, but this is a feat that, that had been accomplished through these prophets in the Old Testament. They performed uh, many great signs and many great miracles. And so Jews would see these great signs and miracles and healings and teachings of Jesus And they'd maybe compare them to some of the great signs and miracles of the prophets of the Old Testament. A Jew would see the transfiguration of Jesus, and many of them would maybe compare it to Moses' face shining. If you remember, Moses went up Mount Sinai, and he encountered God. Moses, he returned to the rest of the Israelites. And what do we see? Moses' face was shining, so Moses actually had to wear a veil in front of the Israelites because his face shone. And so when Jesus' body was illuminated, when it was shining, was transfigured, many of the Jews probably would have saw that and compared it to Moses' face uh, shining. 
And then finally, uh, the Jew would see the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and some of them may compare it to Elijah, who is described as ascending to heaven, whatever that means. I have lots of uh, questions about Elijah and him ascending to heaven, Uh, but they would uh, maybe uh, find some similarities there. And so these two different worldviews, they would look at the same life, the same ministry of Jesus, And it's very plausible that they would come away with two completely different conclusions. The Greco-Romans would look at the life and the ministry of Jesus. And with their prior biases, with their prior knowledge of these Greek gods that they served and worshipped, a lot of them would come to the conclusion that, hey, this guy, he's a god. He's one of the many gods. And I think this worldview influenced many people's viewpoints of Jesus. Whereas we see the Jews... I think with their context and their worldview that they would see these great miracles, these great feats that were accomplished in and through Jesus, and they would conclude that, hey, this is a great man of God. And we see this holds true with the Jews in the biblical account of Jesus' arrest and trial as well. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Matthew. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to read uh, verses 57 through 68. And so this is near the end of Jesus' life, near the end of his ministry on earth, before his death, resurrection, and then ascension into heaven. So Jesus, he was already betrayed by Judas. He was already arrested, and he was taken then to uh, the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council here. And so in verse 57, Of Matthew chapter 26, after Jesus had been arrested, it reads, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two men came forward and and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And so what we see here is that Caiaphas' high priest and these other officials here, they are putting Jesus under trial at night. It was an illegal trial. They're not supposed to have a trial in the middle of the night because they wanted witnesses to be able to come and give their testimony of what actually happened. But in, in the middle of this illegal uh, trial that they were holding, we see very clear their motivation was to put Jesus to death. Caiaphas, these other, these other officials here, they were fed up and they were tired of Jesus. They wanted Jesus of Nazareth to die. That's what they wanted for him. For this Jesus of Nazareth, he was starting this revolution. He was turning this Jewish faith almost upside down. And he was totally radicalizing this faith that these Jews held so dear. And they were fed up with this. They wanted nothing more than than for this man to die. And so they held this illegal trial at night for the sole purpose that they were seeking to put him to death. 
And so they, they brought up uh, a number of false witnesses trying to come up with, with a claim to try and put Jesus to death. None of this was working. Uh, witness uh, comes forward and says, well, I heard that he said that he was going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's a pretty bold claim. The, the temple was very important for the Israelites. What they failed to understand uh, was the imagery that Jesus was speaking of and how Jesus himself was, was, was the temple and he was going to be destroyed. He was is going to die. And then on the third day, God would raise him up from the grave. And so we, we continue there in, in 63 and it reads, but Jesus remained silent. And so in the midst uh, of all of these, uh, these accounts that they're, they're throwing at Jesus, trying to put him to death, Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, this is careful. We, we got to see this. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And so finally, the high priest is like, all right, I've had it. You have got to tell us, Jesus. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face, face. they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And so here, uh, if we were to uh, continue the story here, uh, we're not going to read the rest of the story this morning. I'd encourage you to do that on your own time. But we continue the story here. This is the final charge that the Jews give to Jesus before they hand him over to Pilate to be crucified. The Jews, they wanted to keep their hands uh, crystal clear from this. They didn't want to put Jesus to death themselves. And so they wanted to uh, come up with this accusation worthy of death. And then they wanted to uh, throw him over to the Roman Empire to, to handle that, to, to handle with, with the punishment uh, of killing uh, Christ Jesus. So this is the final charge that they bring against Jesus is that Jesus says that he is one, the Christ. That was a very bold claim. The Jews have been waiting for the Christ. They've been waiting for the chosen one of God for thousands of years. We looked last week, uh, they're looking uh, forward to this chosen one of God all the way back with Adam and Eve, where God told uh, the serpent that the offspring of the woman Get ready, guys. It's going to crush the head of the serpent. It happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so for thousands of years, these guys were waiting for the Christ. And so Jesus says, yeah, I'm claiming to be the Christ. And then uh, Caiaphas says, you also claim to be the son of God. Another very high uh, calling, another bold claim by Jesus, claiming to be the son of the one and only true God. And Jesus says, you have said so. And so Caiaphas and these other officials, they had it. They said, what more do we need? This guy, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who's starting this revolution, he claims that he is actually the Christ. And on top of that, he thinks that he is the son of God as well. Guys, you hear this? We need to have this man killed. And so, yeah, they they all answer that this man deserves death. And that's exactly what happens to this man. 
They send him off to Pilate, and, and uh, eventually Jesus is crucified by the Roman government. Why? Because Jesus said that he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And the Jews could not bear that thought. They had to put him to death. And so the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, not because he was claiming to be God, but because Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. I think there is a big difference there. And Jesus, he confirmed this claim that, that yes, I do believe that I am the Christ. I am the son of God. You have said so yourself. Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. And I think this claim holds true throughout the rest of scripture as well. When we read through the biblical accounts of Jesus, I think we see a clear distinction between Jesus and God and how Jesus is not necessarily co-equal or equal with God. And your sheets that were handed out to you uh, this morning, we typically uh, don't have handouts, um, uh, but throughout this year, we're giving handouts. So this is more uh, information driven. Um, and so I want to make sure you guys have the notes that you need there on your shirt, uh, on your sheets, not probably not your shirts. Uh, that'd be pretty cool if you have them on your shirts. Uh, but on your sheets, uh, you have uh, 10 biblical statements that support the notion that Jesus is not co-equal with God at, at the bottom of your handout there. And so these all come from uh, Dustin Smith's article, 47 Different Reasons Why Jesus, or, or Why uh, God is Not Equal with Jesus, or Why God Has uh, No Equals or Co-Equals. And so here are just 10 different reasons from this article uh, that Dustin's composed of 47 different reasons why uh, God and Jesus aren't equal. And so the first one that you have written there on your sheet is that Jesus called the Father my God, both before and after he was resurrected. Calling someone else God puts them above yourself. You recognize them as a deity. You recognize them as having power and authority. And so in Matthew 27, uh, 46, it reads, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we continue the story that we read of Jesus being put on trial by the Jews. Yeah, Jesus hung on that cross. And while he was hanging on that cross, he said in front of all the people there, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so then Jesus breathed his last and he was resurrected and he ascended into heaven and then in Revelation, uh, in the first couple chapters there, we, we see uh, Jesus writing seven letters uh, to the seven different churches. And, and one letter that Jesus wrote uh, to this church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus says, this is Jesus writing or saying, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Neither, uh, never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And so here Jesus in writing this letter uh, in the, the book of Revelation over and over again, he, he refers to the father as my God. Well, apparently Jesus in his resurrected state, his state where he is ascended into the heaven, he still has a God. And that's the father, Yahweh, our heavenly father. And so that's uh, reason number one 
I think uh, God and Jesus are not equal with one another. Uh, the second is that God is immortal, uh, but Jesus died. We can see in 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul writes, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And, and so here, Paul describing the only God, he describes them as an immortal God. But again, we're not reading, but if we were to continue the story of Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Shortly thereafter, Jesus took his last breath. Jesus died on that cross. He died for the sins of the world. But yet God is immortal. Another reason, in the future, Christ will be subordinate to God. He will be subject to him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Paul writes, this is known as the resurrection chapter. I love this chapter. It talks a lot about our hope in the coming kingdom. And within this, within this process of God's kingdom being established here on earth, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, when all things are subjected to him, the son, referring to the son of God, Christ Jesus himself, will also be subjected to him, referring to God, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And so Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God. But one day, I don't know when that day is coming. I know we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. So we're getting closer. But one day, Jesus is going to descend from heaven to earth. And when he does that, God is going to put all things under his feet. Jesus, he is going to enact his authority and power and judgment on all of the earth. God has given Jesus all power and all authority. I'll backtrack. I wouldn't say all power. He's given him all authority and all the rulership over the world. But yet we see that the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that, so that God may be all in all. So God is going to put all things under Christ Jesus, but yet Christ Jesus himself is going to be under God. He's going to be, he's going to be subjected to God so that God may be all in all as Christ is going to establish God's kingdom here on earth. Next reason that we have is that Jesus recognized that the Father was the only true God. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying to God, and Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus here, he's praying to, to his heavenly Father, and, and he says, it's eternal life, that they know you. Who? You are the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Next, we have, according to Paul, Jesus did not consider equality with God. Philippians 2, 6, Paul writes, who, though he was in the form of God, referring to Jesus in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so according to Paul, this isn't Jesus' own words. We'll get to Jesus' own words here in a minute. But according to Paul, Paul says that Jesus did not uh, count equality with, a thing, with God a thing to be grasped. Next, we see that uh, Jesus or God is described as the head of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 3, Paul writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so here, there, there is a level of authority that uh, God has over Christ, as the head of Christ is God. Next, we have that, uh, we see that God cannot be tempted, but Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are. James 1.13 states, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why not? 
Well, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And so James is dealing with this issue of temptation. And don't you dare say that you're being tempted by God because God cannot tempt anyone, nor can God be tempted by evil himself. And so God cannot be tempted we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, Jesus known as our high priest, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's pretty cool. That we have a high priest, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God, and he's mediating for you and I, and Jesus He's able to experience empathy for you and I. He's able to sympathize with you and I because he is tempted in every way, just like you and I are tempted. The thing that, one thing that separates Jesus uh, from you and I is that Jesus never once fell to the temptation of sin. Next, we have that the disciples perceived Jesus as God's servant. In Acts uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 30, these, these are the early believers praying to God, and, and uh, they're praying. They say, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so these earliest followers of Jesus, these earliest Christians, they're praying to God, and, and they're saying that, God, uh, you're, you're doing these things, you're performing through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so Jesus, he came to serve his heavenly father. And next we have Christ said his teaching is not his own, but it came from the father. John 7, 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So, so these ideas, these teachings that Jesus what, what was spreading to the people around him, these aren't his original ideas. These are ideas. These are teachings that God gave to Jesus. And then finally, the last one that, that we're going to cover this morning, again, this comes from an article where Dustin highlights 47 different reasons uh, why they aren't equal. Uh, but this one, in my eyes, is the strongest that we have to show that uh, God the Father and Christ Jesus are not equal because Jesus himself said that the Father is greater than I. In John 14, verse 28, it reads, actually, Let's go ahead and you can take a moment and you can look in your own Bible as well. I'll give you a minute to, to look in your own Bible. If you have your Bibles with you uh, this morning in John chapter 14, because again, I just think, uh, I think all of these are very strong reasons, but I think this one uh, trumps them all. So in John chapter 14, verse 28, this is uh, Jesus speaking. And he said, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And so if you don't trust anyone else's words, you should never blindly trust my own words. I think uh, Paul's words, uh, you can put your trust in. But even if you don't trust Paul's words, Jesus himself said that the Father is greater than I. And so I think it's very consistent throughout the scriptures that Jesus being the son of God is not equal with God himself. Or instead, Jesus, again, is portrayed as the son. He's not the father. He, he's not God himself, but he's described, he's portrayed throughout the scriptures as the son of God. And 
I completely understand that uh, this is a bit of a controversial uh, statement. This is, we, we saw at the beginning uh, of this message, we see that 43% of evangelicals agree with the statement that Jesus is not God. So you go and, and you uh, proclaim to your friends, to your family, to, to your Christian uh, friends and families, and you say that, hey, Jesus is not God. The blind chances are that uh, 50% of them would, would not agree with you and say that God is, uh, or, or that Jesus is God. And so I never want you to blindly trust what I say. If this is something that is new to you and has you rattled a bit, I encourage you to study the, the, the scriptures on your own, study uh, this particular topic. I personally would absolutely love to talk this topic with any of you all. Uh, there are a few things in this world that I enjoy more than uh, discussing theology. Um, and it would be my sincere joy and honor and privilege to go over this topic with you all. But I think from my personal perspective and how I see Jesus portrayed through the, the scriptures, because I think the scriptures is the ultimate authority, the ultimate authority of truth that we have in our life. When I look through the scriptures from beginning to end, the story that I see is that Jesus is the son of God. Not God himself, but the son of God. And so that puts Jesus on a very, very unique pedestal. I think we can run into two different extremes when it comes to Jesus. One extreme that I see people running into is that they run into the error of giving Jesus too much glory. I think there is glory that is ascribed to the Father alone, to God alone. And I think we can run into that error of giving Jesus the glory that isn't his glory, the, the glory that belongs to the Father alone. The other extreme, the other error that, that I find people uh, can get themselves into is that we can run into the error of, of giving Jesus too little glory. Jesus, he, uh, he, he's a man. He, he was born of a virgin. He, he is the, the son of God. But Jesus, he's no ordinary man by any means. He's the Christ. He's the chosen one of God. God's plan for you and I and all of mankind centers around this one single man, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, we see that, that he is the unique son of God. He, uh, many of us are familiar with uh, John three sixteen, probably the most well-known uh, verse, and talking about Jesus being the only son or the only begotten or only birth son of God. I think you and I, we can share in that blessing. I think you and I, we are children of God, but we're not born children of God. We, we are all God's creation. We're created in the image of God, but being a child of God, I do not think that is a title that that is a blessing that we have at birth. Uh, the, the New Testament writers talks about this privilege coming through our faith. We become an adopted child of God. We become his, his sons and his daughters. And, and Roman adoption, when you look at Roman adoption, you, you are full-fledged son and daughter of God. There, there are no limits to you being a child of God just because you weren't a child of God at birth. But, but that distinguishes us from Jesus because Jesus from birth was the son of God. Of God. 
We'll see in the coming weeks that Jesus, he is the agent, he, he is the representation of God. He, he is the image of God. Jesus, he, he is the king of the world, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. God has put all things under Jesus' feet. That's not a privilege that you and I share. And we see that Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus died for the sins of the world so that we could be reconciled to God. And so we have to stay away from the error of not giving Jesus enough glory. Because although I don't think he's God himself, I think the scriptures uh, go throughout that process, portray Jesus as the son of God, not God himself. I think it portrays Jesus as a very, very, very special being where he only plays second fiddle to the father. Everyone else, every being, every other angel is subject to Christ Jesus, the king of the world. And so we have to find that proper level uh, of glory, of worship, of honor and praise to Christ Jesus. We can't give him too much. We can't give him too little. We need to find uh, that balance there. And when we give glory to Jesus, to the son of God, you can be assured that that brings glory to God as well. When someone uh, compliments Ezra or Ayla, they say, oh, your kids are so cute. Oh, my goodness, they're growing up so good. They're, they're, you got the perfect children, Kyle. You'd be fooled. Uh, but uh, that brings me glory. That, that, that brings a warm feeling to my heart when, when someone uh, gives glory to my children. And many of you can, can relate to that. It, it brings you glory. It brings you honor. It brings you joy and happiness when someone compliments and glorifies your children. For that brings you as a parent glory as well. And the same thing happens with God as well. When we go and we spend a series talking about how Jesus is the Christ, he's a chosen one of God, that Jesus is the unique son of God, that Jesus is the king of the world, that he's the savior of the world. Not only does that bring Jesus glory, but that brings Jesus' father glory as well, our heavenly father, Yahweh. And so this Christmas season, we are celebrating Jesus. We are bringing glory to Jesus. And in doing this, the Father is glorified as well. And so let's celebrate Jesus this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, the scripture that you have miraculously preserved for us to consume, to study and meditate on. Father, it's my hope and it's my prayer that you give us all a passion for your scriptures, for your truth, the truth and knowledge of who you are and the truth and the knowledge of who your son is as well. So God, I just pray that you grant us all clarity on who Jesus is, Jesus of Nazareth, your Christ. God, I pray that we give him the proper glory and honor, and worship, and praise, type of praise that brings you glory, Father. So God, we thank you. We love you. Thank you for this Christmas season. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.